With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, everyone. I'm Hilary Kerr, the co-founder and chief content officer of Who, What, Where, and this is Second Life a podcast spotlighting women who have truly inspiring careers. We're talking about their work journeys, what they've learned from the process of setting aside their doubts or fears, and what happens when they embark on their second life. Today, I'm chatting with Shanlin Ma, the co-founder and co-CEO of wedding registry site Zola. As a kid, Shanlin always dreamed of being an entrepreneur. In fact, her childhood bedroom decor of choice was a poster of her idol, Jerry Yang, the co-founder of Yahoo. So, after graduating with her MBA from Stanford, Shan Lin pursued her lifelong dream and took a role at Yahoo, first as an intern and later in product marketing. Then, in 2008, she moved over to e-commerce company Guilt Group as their first product lead and youngest executive on the team. While there, she founded and ran her own business unit, Guilt Taste, where she got to work closely with her future Zola co-founder, Nobu. Though Shan Lin moved on to a role as chief product officer at jewelry company, Chloe and Isabel, she and Nobu still percolated on an idea for a business. During that time, Shan Lin also was spending nearly every weekend at friends' weddings and was constantly met with clunky wedding registry sites. Shan brought her frustration to Nobu, and he lamented that in planning his own wedding, the registry was a pain point. The two realized this area of wedding planning needed disrupting, and with the skills they'd both gained working in e-commerce at Gilt, they set out to do just that. Zola now has helped over 2 million couples plan their weddings and, just recently, expanded to include a baby registry service. Shan's determination and ability to turn childhood dreams into reality over and over again is truly inspiring, and I'm so thrilled she's here today. Now, on Second Life, it's Shan Lin Ma. Shan, are you ready for this? Yes. Hi, Hillary. Hi. I'm so excited we get to do this. I've followed your career for a very long time, so the fact that we are finally getting a chance to discuss it in full is really a thrill for me, to put it mildly. Likewise, I've been a huge fan of Who, What, We're Forever and love your podcast. So. Oh, thank you. It's so fun to be talking to you. Well, we like to start at the beginning on this podcast. So what did you study in school? And much more importantly, what did you think you were going to be when you grew up? So I grew up in Australia, did my undergraduate degree there, did a degree in economics and marketing, and then moved to the US you know, after working in Australia for some time. I was lucky enough to go to business school. And that was really the thing that changed my entire life. 
growing up in Australia, you feel very isolated from the rest of the world because it's just so far away. It's a big island in the middle of nowhere. Mm -hmm. And so I used to get my personal inspiration from magazines. Being a nerdy child, it was business magazines. And (laughs) I would read about entrepreneurs at that time, like Jerry Yang, who started Yahoo. And that was who I wanted to be. I wanted to be Jerry Yang. I have to say, I've interviewed probably close to like 500 people for this podcast over time. And you are the first person to say I had Jerry Yang on my wall growing up. (laughs) I think at some point someone told Jerry Yang and he also said that is the first time someone has said that to him. So. I love that because who we become and who we are as kids, there are these links between those two things. It's not always exact, but sometimes when you look back, you're like, oh, I can see the seeds of this thing. We're already taking root, even at a very young age. So the transition from Sydney to Stanford Business School, I feel like on one hand might have been big, but at the same time, smaller because California and Australia, though I realize very different in many ways. There are some cultural similarities. I know Stanford is more landlocked than Sydney is, certainly. But what was that experience like? And why did you decide on Stanford for an MBA? Not like you need a lot of reasons because it's Stanford. But I'm curious (laughs) about why you felt like that would be the place to go and the right fit for you. Yeah, I mentioned I really wanted to be like Jerry Young, start a tech company, And when I looked at companies like Yahoo and other tech companies that were being started at that time, you know, like eBay, Google, when you look at where these companies were started, they all came out of Stanford. So I thought, well, I guess that's the only place you can go if you want to be in tech. (laughs) And at that time, I didn't know anyone who had ever worked in the U.S. I didn't know anyone who had ever gone to business school in the U.S. So I thought that is really the place you need to be. Turns out it is the perfect place to get into technology, but was very fortunate to be able to go there. And, you know, I think, of course, the reality is that there are many ways to get into tech. There are many different schools or, you know, not school that you can go down as a path to find your way into tech. But that certainly helped me a great deal. Got it. And then culturally, how did it feel? The two years at business school were probably some of the best years of my life in the sense that it changed my entire world. You know, my frame of reference before that was relatively narrow. And suddenly I was being exposed to over 300 classmates who all had very ambitious dreams. Many of them wanted to do the same thing that I wanted to do. And then the professors, guest lecturers, everyone that was coming in, whether they had done something that was a success or something that ended in failure, they had done it. And just being in that environment of brilliant, inspirational people talking about their journeys day after day, it kind of makes it feel doable. Mm -hmm. Doesn't make it feel like it's always going to work, but it makes it feel like, yeah, they could do it. Why don't you? And I think that exposure was something that I had never seen before in my life. I love that. So yes, an MBA is about the learning and what you do in the classroom, but it also is about the interning that you do, the additional work that you do around that. How did you think through some of those key internship or work experiences while getting your MBA? So I went to work at the place that the person I wanted to be started, which was Yahoo. Was that always the plan or the dream? It was the dream. 
It's crazy when the dream comes true. And just as a side note, one of the best days during my time working at Yahoo was when I was walking down the hallway of this nondescript office building and past Jerry Yang in the hallway. And I still remember how I felt. I walked past him, I stopped in my tracks, and I thought, oh my God, I've made it. <laughs> so I did my NBA internship at Yahoo and then was also lucky to go back there and work You know, as my first job out of business school. And that was an incredible experience. It was really the place where I first truly fell in love with product development, meaning online product, whether it was at that time, mostly web products, soon after came mobile products. At that time, I was working in a group that was working on small business advertising. It was actually a business unit called Overture. It was an acquisition that Yahoo made that was really the pioneer of search advertising, even before Google. And so we were thinking about, well, how do small businesses want to advertise? And then what online products can we build to really help them get exposure, get their name out there? And so I got to go and talk to a lot of small businesses. I remember talking to owners of car dealerships, to a founder of an artificial Christmas tree startup. <laughs> it was the full gamut and I would understand their needs, their pain points. We would go back, come up with ideas of possible solutions to their pain points and then just watch them say whether or not they would want to use it and then go away and build the things that they were actually excited about. So that was the best possible training ground, not just to be a product manager, but also an entrepreneur. That makes so much sense, to put it mildly. Okay, so you had this amazing experience at Yahoo. You ended up working there full time. So tell me, too, about that transition, because to have the dream, to run towards the dream, to execute, on one hand, it sounds so exciting. But on the other, sometimes the reality, especially the further you get into something, doesn't always necessarily mesh with the dream entirely. So I'm curious about what your experience was like. So I think one of the reasons that I was able to go back there and have a full-time job at the end of my summer internship was that I was just willing to do whatever it took <laughs> to be successful in that summer internship. You know, I think my project was coming up with a concept for a new small business ad product hmm. and then running a pilot, analyzing the results and presenting that out to see whether it should be rolled out full-time. And that's a lot to do within a two and a half month period of time, particularly in a yeah. very large company where you do require buy-in from legal, finance, everyone. And I just would not stop until I got it done. And at the end, I think one of the moments that I was really proud of was that I was able to present the project to this CMO. And you can imagine having the CMO look over your project one-on-one -on -one as a summer intern at a company you know, with thousands and thousands of people is a scary thing. And she said to me, wow, you know, it's actually impressive how much you've been able to do in such a short amount of time. And I think based on that, it was really just working my butt off that I was able to do what I think not many other interns were able to do. And I think that was the reason I got asked back. And then once I was there and back again, again, I was just willing to work as hard as I possibly could to make sure that I was able to get more opportunity. Mm -hmm. You know, someone on my team has a famous quote, which she says regularly, which is, the prize for winning the pie eating contest is more pie. And more pie. <laughs> I think that is really true. And I was willing and have always been willing to eat a lot of pie. 
Okay, so post-Stanford, when you took the role full-time at Yahoo, can you talk to me a little bit about what that role was and what skills were you honing at that point in your career? You know, I think so much of career has to do with timing of what's happening in the market right now. And then are you able to put yourself or be lucky to be in a position where you're able to be where the exciting things are happening? True. And I was fortunate in that that was right before the mobile revolution started. Mm -hmm. In those years that I was at Yahoo, there was a lot of vision and excitement on the mobile team. So I was able to get myself onto the mobile team. Remember, this is before the iPhone came out. Right. And so there was this idea of like, what if a mobile device could have different apps? Wouldn't that be amazing? And Yahoo could be the platform upon which you could build different apps. And so the team was like, okay, there's this big mobile conference that's happening at right at the first week of January. So we have to be able to announce that offering. And then we have to be able to launch the platform with a number of different important apps already on there built so that developers and engineers can see what is possible. No pressure. <laughs> it was a very thrilling moment because there was a very tight deadline and there was a huge goal that we all had to march towards that you know hadn't been done yet and wasn't clear how it would be done. And yet there was like a group of people that were willing to do whatever it took to get it done. And so I remember we would work together with the engineers and the product designers and key partners like MTV at that time, MySpace was oh, an yeah. you know, important partner. And we would go to the leaders of that team and lock ourselves in a room and just design what would their app look like? How would it work? What would be the interactions? We would get out with like a basic design and then work on, okay, how do we build it? And how do we build it in time? And we got it done and it launched you know, that experience was what made me fall in love, not just with product development, but also working with developers and product designers together in a collaborative way to get things that you thought were impossible done and brought to life. Now, of course, sadly for Yahoo, the iPhone launched very shortly after that with a very similar vision and product, but done in a way that was obviously more compelling. So I think, you know, the vision and the idea was right. And the opportunity to be a part of that and then to, you know, later on in later roles, bring that excitement to new companies and say, we really need to be on mobile now and we need to get it done no matter what. That was you know, really important to me and I think to everyone that worked on that project. So talk to me about the moment or the time when you started to think, this is great. But I am starting to feel the itch to try something new. I'm curious about what you felt like you were missing or how you even started to think about next steps after Yahoo. So after working in Yahoo, that was very much a big company. Mm -hmm. And while I was able to work in an entrepreneurial way, I still wanted to understand what would it be like to start something and get a bit closer to that kind of startup feel. And at that time, I was thinking about different startups. I just happened to be shopping on Guilt Group, which was very early on in its life. It had just launched. It was invitation only. It was a very exciting new concept in the e-commerce space. And I thought, wow, what a great idea. What a great product. And by the way, what a great founding team. I would love to work here. I looked at the jobs page. There was the exact job that I was looking for at the time. And so I put my resume in via the website 
and got a call the next day. Wow. <laughs> and ended up moving across the country from Silicon Valley to New York a few months later to take the job as the first product person at Gilt, which was an incredible experience, the best possible training for starting my own startup and got to be within that company when it was close to 30 people up through your four years later, over a thousand people. Okay, so I'm sure this will come as no surprise to you, but I personally am deeply familiar with all things Gilt Group. But for our audience, if there's anyone who doesn't know, can you give just a little bit of context for how it operated and then what you specifically were looking to do or some of those early ideas that you had for, oh, this is what I could bring to the table here at Gilt Group? Yeah. So it was a pioneer in the flash sales space in the US, which meant that when I joined, it was women's luxury brands at 80% off for a limited time only. So at noon every day, you would come to the site, see a curated number of products from a small number of brands like Alexander McQueen or Christian Louboutin and be able to buy that and very quickly, it would sell out. And then the next day, there would be a totally new set of sales, new brands, new products. It was very beautiful in the way that it was photographed. It felt displayed in a full price way, except it was a great discount. And mm -hmm. because there was, I think, that gaming element of, I don't know what's going to be there today. I know it's going to sell out really quickly. And so you feel like you've won something when you have gotten the chance to buy. Yes. And for that reason, in the four years that I was there, it quickly grew from zero to over 600 million in revenue. And when I first joined, it was women's fashion only. And part of the reason I was hired and the growth that followed what was driven by the team was really the expansion into new categories. So there was men's sales, mm -hmm. children's, Guilt Home was launched. I was able to then have the opportunity to pitch and launch my idea for a new business unit within the company, Guilt Taste, which was the gourmet food and wine division. Yes. And as part of that, you know, coming back to mobile as a theme was able to launch the mobile apps. We were kind of early to mobile. And so as a result, mobile apps drove a huge amount of the business because we were one of the few e-commerce apps in mm -hmm. the Apple App Store. And so it kind of gained a lot of attention and a lot of promotion within there. So being the first ever product lead at Gilt, what was your day-to-day -day like? Because you went from swimming in a sea with lots and lots of other fish to then being the only fish. And now all of a sudden you're being tasked with like figuring out how to do, I would imagine, everything yourself and then to build out a team. These are huge pivots in just a day-to-day -day workload. And I'm wondering what that was like for you. It was exhilarating. And, you know, I think part of that was because the company was growing so quickly in terms of number of people, revenue, expansion into new categories. And so a lot of the early years was spent around how do we keep redoing and building this product and this platform to be able to support this expansion. It was like a runaway train and we just needed to keep building the tracks in front of it. And so, you know, for example, when I joined, there was, you know, maybe one to two sales per day. And then over time, 
that became potentially up to 50 sales a day across all the different categories. (laughs) And so the technology and the user experience that you need to support that is very different. And so a lot of time was spent around thinking, okay, how do customers want to shop? How do they want to come into the experience? How do we put the right categories and brands and products in front of them at the right time? And then how do I, as a product person, collaborate very closely with the product design team and the engineering team to come up with new ideas for new ways of shopping that have never been thought of before. But once you put them in front of the users, you know, they can't imagine anything else. And, you know, I'm proud of a lot of the interactions that we came up with were things that were then copied by many others. But in many cases, we were the first and that was the most fun part of the job. So one of the things that I love about your experience at Gilt is that you got to do a lot of things in one place. So yes, you're building out this whole team. And yes, you are getting all of those experiences that go with it. But you also got to, as you hinted earlier, build and lead a brand for Gilt Taste and create that. And I think that's something that often, not that legacy or corporate companies can't do this, but often that is very unique to startups is this ability to like, if you have a good idea, you can run with it and try different things and move quickly. How did you come up with that concept? And what was it like being empowered to create something of your own within this larger startup framework? You know, it was almost something that happened by accident, which is kind of embarrassing to admit. I love it. You know, what happened was I had been there for a couple of years. The CEO, someone that I'd worked with for a very long time there, was having brainstorming sessions with different groups around the company. I happened to be in one of those brainstorming sessions where brainstorming ideas for new things the company could do and launch. And after one of those sessions, I went up to him and I said, one of the ideas we discussed was a food division. I'm really excited by it. I would love to just work on it in my spare time. So I won't take any time out of my actual workday. I'll work on nights and weekends, and then I'll come to you if I think I have something. And I'll never forget this. He said, don't wait too long before you come to me. It doesn't have to be perfect. You can just share as you're working through things and I'll give you some feedback and then you take it from there. That was the best invitation to then go and start this process. So I would... First of all, start with who are the competitors out there and what are the food sales that we've done so far and how have they performed and analyze that. And if we were to come up with something exciting and new, what would it look like? How would it work? What would we want to offer? And so every few weeks, I would work on a set of new questions and bring it to the CEO. He would give me feedback. He would say, I think this makes sense. I think this doesn't make sense. Keep iterating, go away, come back, do it again. And over the course of a few months, without kind of realizing it, I had put together this deck, which was essentially like a business plan in many ways, or a pitch deck. So I thought, yeah, this is fun, but I didn't think too much of it. And one weekend, I didn't know this at the time, but the CEO was having an exec team offsite. And he emailed me late Saturday night and he said, can you send me that deck you've been working on? And I'm so glad that I replied and sent it back straight away. And Monday morning, he came back and he said, yeah, so we reviewed it at the offsite. We've decided we're going to launch it. You're going to run it. You should start next month. And I was like, wait, what? (laughs) Of course, I didn't say this, but I thought, well, this was just like a exercise that I had been working through. And maybe at some point someone else would do it who would have done this before. And of course, I was like, yes, hell yes, I would love to do that. And that's how it started. 
And so, you know, a couple of things there, I always think, you know, a sliding door moment, like what mm -hmm. would have happened if I hadn't been checking my email late Saturday night, if I hadn't replied straight away, I'm so glad that I did. And that was the start of starting a mini startup within the safety net of a big startup. If I thought I had been exposed to a lot up until that point, I had no idea of all the things that I would have to do that other people in the company were doing that suddenly I had to do myself. Yeah. It's like the most incredible training ground in so many ways. What was hardest for you in that project and what came really easily? I think the things that came really easily were the things that I loved that I had done before, which is namely the product mm -hmm. and building the team, collaborating on how should it look, how should it work, what should it do. I learned a lot about merchandising because, of course, you have to bring on brands and products. And these were brands that we, for the most part, had not been working with. And that's where I thought, you know, it all comes down to who are the people that have the right relationships that can pitch the business in the right way to get those partners on board. And so those were the things that I think helped us really stand out. The thing that I think I underestimated was the importance of being very much on top of the PNL in partnership with the finance team at the larger company. You know, I think I thought, oh, well, I have the green light to do this. So I'm just going to run as hard as I can and do this. And didn't quite process at the time that this was in the context of a larger company that has its own priorities, particularly its own financial priorities. And I should be thinking about what is it that this business needs to contribute? And if it doesn't, what is the implication? So then at what point in all of this did you start thinking, now I really have a handle on what it takes to start my own business? Because I know you had another step before that happened, but I really believe that ideas start often a long time before anyone moves on them, if you really, mm -hmm. really trace it back. So I'm wondering at what point, was it while at Gilker? Was it after or during building that project? Like, when did you start thinking, okay, I just need a little bit more and then I'm going to do my own thing? You know, I think there were certain elements that were really magical and special about the guilt business and product that... I had in my mind, if I was to do anything, I would want to capture this same magic. And specifically what those things were was, one, there was this crazy love, this like customer love of the brand, the product, everything to do with the company. And like, for example, anytime I would tell friends or strangers where I worked, people would say, oh, you don't understand. I love, <laughs> love, love. Like they would shake my shoulders. Like I love guilt so much. And so that was so rare and special and still is. And I thought, whatever I do, it has to be the same. The second thing was the group of people there was just incredible in terms of the attitude, the culture, the learning orientation, the entrepreneurial bent that people had that I thought, you know, if I was ever to put together a group of people in my own startup, I would want it to be a very similar type of culture and attitude and profile of person. And then there was, I guess, the inbuilt mentality and success of the business was based on innovation and fast iteration. And that was the North Star. Like, how quickly can we do this? How quickly can we learn? And how far can we push the envelope to do things that no one else is doing? 
And, you know, I think it's now only that I've gotten exposed to a lot of different types of companies that I've seen how rare that is. But similarly, wanted to do the same thing. And so those were the seeds that were planted in my mind. I think there were also things in that business which I thought, oh, if I was to start my own startup, I would want it to do it very differently. Mm-hmm. And luckily with Zola, we did. But the idea itself, I would say, didn't come until much later. Fair enough. Okay. So... We're going to get to Zola in a minute. But first, I want to talk about your in-between work, which was when you served as the chief product officer of the jewelry company, Chloe and Isabel, which another of like such fond memories. (laughs) So talk to me about the decision to take that role, how you knew it was the right time and what you wanted to learn or achieve in that role. Yeah. So after having worked at Guilt for four years, I mentioned it was over a thousand people by the time I left. From 30, right? (laughs) Yes. I think I was really missing the earlier startup years. I felt like I had done everything I could do at Guilt. And so I wanted to almost do it all again. And so was asked to join this startup that was right at the beginning of the journey. And I thought, wow, it's at the exciting part. And I did think I've always wanted to start something is now the time. But I thought I don't have the idea. I don't have the person that I would start it with. I don't know who that would be. I don't have the time to think about it right now. I didn't feel ready. And so you know, I took the job and then I realized I've done this before, which in retrospect, I should have realized that earlier. But I think it was only through kind of going to a new company and facing a lot of the same challenges, a lot of the same dynamics, you know, the problems to be solved in an early stage Mm -hmm. startup, I felt like okay, I've seen this game multiple times and it's not as exciting to me the fifth time around. And at the same time, here at this company was an incredibly exciting, inspiring, motivating founder. Her experience was in merchandising and creative and design and she was building her dream. And it also made me think, if she can do it, why can't I? And so that was, you know, frankly, inspiring to me to take the same leap. And so at the time that these thoughts were starting to percolate in my mind, I had lunch with the person who is now my co-founder. His name is Nobu. He and I had worked together for many years at Guilt, and we were just catching up as old work friends. And he looked at me and he said, you know, work is fine, but it's not as fun as when we were working together. And I looked at him, I was like, you know what, I feel the same way. And we kind of said, look, we've always talked about starting something together at some point. What are we waiting for? And that was at that lunch, we decided, let's just do it. We both went back the next day. I handed in my resignation. Wait, what? (laughs) Yes, the decision was made. I mean, this is the second time you're like, you're sending in your resume on a whim, getting a call the next day. You have one conversation and you quit your job. Like, what? (laughs) Wait, did you have an idea for what that thing would be? I mean, did you have the idea for Zola? No, no. Ma'am. Okay. Walk me through your headspace because this is, my Virgo is terrified. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I knew that it wouldn't be like I would be jobless the next day. And the reason why I wanted to do it sooner rather than later was because I wanted to give the founder that I was working for at the time a lot of notice. And I wanted her to feel like she knew the moment that I knew. And so I said, look, I'm not giving you two weeks notice. I'm going to help you find my replacement. I will give this a longer period of time, but I just want you to know that I'm going to leave. 
And it turned out that by the time that I had been working on trying to find and train someone to replace me, ended up being four months since I had that conversation. Four months to also like completely wrap something up, get everything sorted, and at the same time, ideate and come up with a whole game plan. That is still not that much time. Okay. <laughs> How was that working? Like, did you feel stressed? Did you feel excited? How many ideas did you come up with before landing on Zola? I'm still so nervous at this point in the story. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what's funny? I didn't feel nervous at all. I think Great. I felt like Nobu and I would figure it out. And we did. And, and you so did. <laughs> we were both still working in the jobs where we had given our notice. Sometimes we would meet on weekends. We would have brainstorming sessions. We didn't, you know, have the idea. I think it wasn't until we were fully focused on, we're full-time doing our own thing. What is it that we're going to do that we got very serious about coming up with a shortlist and doing a lot of interviews of different people, of users, of people in the industry, of anything remotely connected to the ideas that we had, we would talk to people and over that course of time, come up with, were we feeling better about the idea or worse about the idea or doing kind of a similar process that I was talking to before around like market mm -hmm. sizing and understanding the needs and the pain points and the competitive set. So the evaluation piece of it, using this toolkit that you already had and had deployed many times over the course of your career, but now doing it for yourself. Yes, exactly. But you know, ultimately, we kind of had a short list of ideas. And the more we talked about the idea around weddings, the more excited we got compared to some other ideas where the more we talked about it, the less excited or the more exhausted we got. And we thought, well, if we're not feeling great about an idea and we haven't even started it yet, it's definitely <laughs> not the right idea for us. And so why was the world of weddings interesting to you? And was that born out of your own personal experience as well? Absolutely. That was the year that all my friends were getting married. We all have one of those years. <laughs> we all have <laughs> those years. You're going to a wedding every weekend. You're buying mm -hmm. a lot of wedding gifts. You are maxing out your credit cards on plane trips around the mm -hmm. country. And at that time, I was shopping for my friend's wedding registries. And one of my best friends, I remember, had a registry that was all kind of silverware. And the only thing I could afford was one silver spoon. And I called her and I said, what is happening with your registry? And she said, oh, I don't even know what's on there. My mom did it. I was so frustrated. I couldn't handle it anymore. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, that's interesting. I talked to Nobu about it and he is married. He was complaining about his own wedding registry experience. And we found that on average, couples planning their wedding had to use 20 different sites or apps or services to plan one day. And it was crazy. People were so frustrated. And by the way, these were all very old school, traditional sites. And so we thought, you know, there has to be an easy way. And the more we talked about it, the more we were excited about the elements that were very similar to what we had seen at Gilt, which was it's time sensitive. It is a consumer shopping experience that has a lot of emotion, a lot of joy, but also a lot of stress. And we thought what's available in the market at that time was dominated by big traditional department stores who their experiences felt like cold transactional checkout carts. We thought this is very insulting to our friends getting married and we can do so much better than this. And so that was what we thought, okay, we can start with building a fundamentally different and better wedding registry. But if we do that well, we then have the opportunity to go after the entire weddings market 
which is similarly broken. And that was exciting to us as well. Okay, so talk to me about how you sort of put a roadmap together. Who would do what? Because I think especially when you have a co-founder, it's always great to find someone who has very different skill sets or to know, like, I own this, you own that. So talk to me a little bit about that process. So Nobu is a product design genius. We had worked together previously where he had led the product design team and then I had been leading product. And we said, okay, first thing we need to do is find a CTO. And we did. We were able to get Felix, who we worked with previously, to come join us as the founding CTO. So Nobu and Felix focused on how can we build the best possible product? How should it work And let's get it up and running. And as part of that, let's make sure that we have features that no one has ever seen before. But once they see it, they have to tell all their friends. And then I would focus on all the other elements that need to be in place in order to launch this business, including getting the merchandising. So, you know, the vendor and brand relationships, hiring other people on the team we might need, such as, you know, our first operations person or marketing person, getting legal accounting into place and working on fundraising and how do we fund (laughs) this business up until we start bringing in revenue. And so all those things to get a startup up and running apart from building the product were the things that I was focused on. Just a couple of things. (laughs) That sounds like a very long list of things to do. What were your initial thoughts about business model and I realize we haven't touched on team building that much yet. That's obviously something you've had to do repeatedly over the years. It's a skill that I feel like you really only learn on the job. I'm interested in how you feel about team building in general. Is it a joy? Is it a struggle? Is it I mean, obviously a necessary evil? But it's its own skill, being able to hire the right people at the right time for the right job. Yeah. And, you know, one of the best things about having gone through the guilt experience was getting exposed to so many different people in different functions. The number of marketing people and merchandising people that I saw over the years meant that you could really start to separate what does great in this particular function look like in terms of how does someone who's truly best in class work versus someone who's more average at their job. And then once you kind of identify by function, these are the traits of the best possible people, you can then start to interview and identify those in people you might want to bring on to your own team. The other benefit I will say is that there's nothing quite like working with someone in order to understand whether they are a great teammate or not. And so having worked with a lot of people, that's the best possible like interviewing style. Many of them had since left guilt and we were able to call them up and say, hey, we're building something. This is why you should join us. And luckily for us, many of the founding team members of Zola were people that we had worked with previously. And then we were able to kind of rely on them because we had this shared culture and understanding of what worked well and what didn't work well in a culture that we were then able to interview for those traits. And then talk to me about launch. I'm curious about, again, sort of like, what was that business model? What did the structure look like? And what exactly were you offering on day one? The idea for launch was let's build a wedding registry unlike any other. Let's offer something that lets you register for everything you want from products to experiences to cash all in one place with a registry that's fully personalized, that looks beautiful and lets you be in full control, whether it's shipping the gifts to yourself when you want them 
to doing virtual exchanges for things you don't want to want, but no one has to know. You're maybe trading it in for the couch that you really want to being fully integrated into other parts of the wedding planning experience. So we launched with this product. Luckily, it was disruptive, but we had to start to think about how do we get the word out there? So my goal was we have to launch with couples already on the platform so that we can show, oh, we already have, for example, 50 couples that have their wedding registries and look at how beautiful they are and look at all the things that you could register for that you never even knew you could register for. And so a lot of that countdown to launch was me pounding the pavement to try to find 50 couples who would use us. A lot of it was like calling friends of friends, anyone who was engaged. I would then meet with them one-on-one. Nobu and I would show them the site before it was live and say, what do you think? And if they asked to use it, we would say, great, absolutely, please have at it. And at launch, we had that. We had 50 couples and we were able to go to some tech press to say, we're launching today. And by the way, we already have couples using it. And that, I think, was very helpful. Got it. And then in thinking through the revenue side of things, was it like, oh, this will always be an affiliate model or, oh, we're going to sell larger packages around this or control for placement or new ad product? How did you think through that piece of it? Having the right business model and having a business that worked financially, as well as one that customers loved, was a huge learning from past roles. And so we did things very differently, I think, from other e-commerce businesses we had seen. Namely, we had a wholesale retail business model, so it wasn't affiliate, but we knew that taking inventory, particularly in this business, would be very challenging because in the nature of a registry is you want a huge breadth of assortment, but with very little depth. And so taking inventory would have meant the business model would have never worked. So we had to do it a bit differently. We decided to do it based on a dropship model, which we still do today. And in doing so, we were able to have a business that was actually, it was a more of a hybrid of an e-commerce and marketplace business. I think the other element is that, you know, returns are the silent killer of e-commerce in many Ugh, businesses. Facts. And because we allowed couples to do virtual returns so they could exchange something before it was ever shipped to them, that meant that we had virtually zero return rates. And so a lot of these kind of features that we had designed, we designed with the customer in mind, but it ended up working particularly well for the business model. And all these things have helped us to this day. So talk to me about what the first six months were like. What was the reception like? Did you have any moments where you thought, okay, this is working or this is going to be a thing or this is already a thing? Because I'm always interested in sort of those early moments when you realize I made this big bet, I've done all of this work and it's working. So I had a baby just over two years ago. And I think that the first six months of a startup are very similar to the first six months of a baby and that you always look back at it with such nostalgia and you think, oh, wasn't that such a great time? And it was so fun when in reality, it was much harder than anyone ever told you it would be. Mm-hmm. And in this particular business where we started with a wedding registry, very different to a normal e-commerce business like, say, Gilt, where you can start to see the sales come in straight away. Here, the idea is that someone creates a wedding registry, but their wedding is often a year away. And so revenue and gifts don't actually get sent until closer to the wedding. And so we could see a lot of people setting up wedding registries and using us, but we couldn't see it in the form of orders or revenue. So a lot of that time was spent nervously asking ourselves, is this going to happen? (laughs) 
Of course, the good news is that they did and that when someone sets up a registry with us, they love it, they use us. But that particular time, we just didn't have the history. We didn't have the data to know what would happen. And so that dynamic, we realized, I think a year or two in, is a particular strength of this business, which wasn't something you know intentional in the beginning, which was that we know exactly what we're going to do each year. And that visibility, I think, actually is great from an investor point of view. <laughs> but also, you know, I think sometimes we're like, okay, well, we'll make this change now, but we'll probably see it impact the business in like six to nine months. Right. So talk to me about the fundraising part of it, because I know that was one of the things that you mentioned was on your plate. And I know that you've been able to raise a great amount of money, but it's a process, let's just say, literally (laughs) and figuratively. But what was your experience with raising money like? My experience, and I will say each company's fundraising journey is so different. And so you know, you can never take one person's fundraising journey and extrapolate that into anyone else's. It's so dependent on the time and the person. Our seed round of funding, Kevin Ryan, who was the founder of Guilt and many other startups in New York and a well-known entrepreneur, he was the person that we had worked with very closely at Guilt. And so when Nobu and I talked to him and talked about the weddings business startup that we were launching, he immediately said, I've always been excited about weddings. Let's do this together. I'll give you the funding and we can do this straight away. And so he ended up being our sole seed investor and came on as a co-founder. And because we had known him so well for so many years, you know, we were so excited to keep working with him. So when people hear this, they say, wow, that was the easiest seed fundraise of all time. You had it so easy. And I say, actually, the only reason that happened was because I worked my butt off and Nobu and I both worked our butt off 24-7 for four years. Yeah, that's quite an audition. (laughs) To uh, make him feel comfortable making that offer. So that was seed round. And then, you know, Series A was actually easier than normal in that we started meeting with a few investors just to get warmed up on, you know, what would it be like? And we started to take these meetings the week or two before we actually launched the product. So we weren't Mm. even live yet. We didn't even know how many users we would have or if this would even work. But we met with the investor who ultimately became our Series A investor We took the meeting, we showed them what we were going to launch, we talked about our backgrounds, why we were passionate, and then a few hours later we had a term sheet. Great team, great firm, great round. And again, people are like, wow, that's a great experience. And it was. But again, it was because we had done all the work and preparation Mm -hmm. to get to that point because we had shown them a fully operating product. And we had also shown them a pitch deck that actually, by the way, was very similar to the work that they had done in weddings. They had done their own deck around what would they want to see in a wedding startup. And it matched very closely to ours. And so we thought, well, we want to work with them because our visions are aligned and they want to work with us because they think we're solving the right problem. Mm-hmm. Okay, so then the next round, Series B, was the harder round because I think, you know, often Series B for many companies is the hard round. It's where you actually have real numbers. You've been out in the market for a little while. And so that was at the point where there weren't that many female founders. It's hard to believe, even less than today, there were close to zero female investors, mm-hmm. VCs. So that round had been meeting with many, many male VCs, many of them multiple decades older, who didn't remember even having a wedding registry in the first place. Like they were involved. Let's be honest. No, they were not, not involved. <laughs> 
So when we described the user, the pain points, and the business, their eyes just kind of glazed over. That was one of the reasons it was tougher to get to yes. Now, ultimately, we got there with an investor who was very product-centric. So he was one of the few investors who actually went to use our product Ah. and saw, oh, this is different. And he was a bit younger, so he thought, oh, I can see how I or my friends might use this. And by the way, the business model is unique and unlike many others that have failed. So we were able to raise that round, and it ended up being that I was the only female founder in New York in that entire year who was able to raise for the Series A. Series B, I don't know the stats, but it was probably One not of that few. far off. <laughs> Very few. So the good news is that there's many more female founders today. Still could be more. <laughs> could be more. Should be more. Should be more. Could be more. Will be more. Yes. Okay, so I want to talk about Zola Baby, but I also want to talk about how you think about newness in general, because you said there was 10 years in between starting Zola and then bringing the baby piece in. But I know that there was obviously so many developments within the core business along the way. I mean, everything from having to pivot and figure out change the dates and Zoom wedding options during sort of high pandemic, having to sort of figure out business models then, at what point you start to introduce like, oh, guest list management or, oh, wedding websites. How do you think through, okay, now is the right time to launch this new aspect? Is it consensus? Is it feedback? Is it your own internal personal map? How do you know now is the right time to do X, Y, or Z? Yeah. So a lot of it is through let's do it and then see in retrospect, did it work? And (laughs) So for example, you know, the first four years of the business, we didn't launch a second product. We focused on the wedding registry and we kept getting so many requests for different things. The number one request we would get was, I love Zola for my registry. Can it also be my wedding website? But we purposely held off until we felt like the registry business was in a good place. And in retrospect, we probably held off too long because when we did launch the wedding website product, it got huge traction right out of the gate, still does. And it was so successful, we thought we probably did that too late. And so we didn't want to make that same mistake again, which is how we knew we should roll faster. So we thought, okay, what are people asking us for next? What's the next most popular request? It was then if you could just print my save the dates and invitations in the same design, mail it for me because you already have all the guest addresses, that would be much easier. And we thought, what a great idea. Let's do it. And so we launched the invitation, the paper business I think a year after the wedding websites, and that similarly took off very quickly. And so we thought, okay, how can we do it even more? The next year, I think we launched two new products. Most recently, I would say the kind of big, hairy, audacious goal, but one that we thought it's going to take longer to build, but it's going to be a bigger more exciting product is the vendor marketplace where couples can come and find their venues, caterers, photographers, everything you need for the actual day of your wedding in your city where you want to get married. That has been a game changer, I think, both for the couples and for us in that now you can plan everything you need for your wedding all on Zola, which was the ultimate vision. And we did that. And then we thought at some point we have to revisit the requests we keep getting every single year for 10 years now, which Mm -hmm. is baby registry. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've heard it for so long, but we've always thought we still have so much to do in weddings. We can't get to baby until we've done everything we have to do in weddings. But this year we saw Bye Bye Baby go under 
And we thought if we're ever going to do a baby registry, now is the time to do it. Mm-hmm. And so that's why, you know, after 10 years, we finally launched Zola Baby as an iPhone app just to see how it would go. Early signals are very strong so far. And so I think we'll continue to do more there. But its product development cycle, the number of products we roll out and when has always been, I think, always will be very much driven by our couples. It's so interesting to see how it has grown. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about like it's officially engagement season all across the world for the next handful of months. What are some of the things that you are most proud of or excited about at Solo right now for all of the newly engaged couples who are about to start using it? I talked a little bit about our vendor marketplace, which is where couples can find venues and all their local vendors. And I think that is where we are innovating in a huge way right now. And so this is a huge pain point where every couple is like, oh, I'm thinking about getting married either in a city that I'm not living in right now, or even if I am living in it, I have no idea where are the places that I could possibly get married or who are the photographers? What do I even think about as a photographer? What is my wedding style? And this is something where people feel so lost and need a lot of guidance, but also want to feel like they're getting it from a brand that they love and trust and are getting the right recommendations at the right time that's right for them based on everything you know that a company knows about their style. And so as a brand, I think it's an exciting moment for us to show people that we can do things that they didn't even realize were possible. And we've started to roll out some of these features, for example, where vendors or venues that we think are right for a couple, if a couple says, yes, I'm open to people reaching out to me, vendors can do that. And couples can be like, oh, now I don't have to be the one searching for things that I don't even know what I want. I can just get the right venue in my inbox saying, hey, here's what we have. Maybe it's right for you. And I think innovative things like this just save a lot of time for unfortunately still primarily women who are doing a lot of the wedding planning. And I think that is what gets me up still every day is how can we make people's lives easier during one of the most expensive, stressful times of their lives. I think the other piece here is a lot of the work that we're doing to make sure that the wedding vendor community is one that is very welcoming to all kinds of couples. Mm -hmm. And this has been very close to our hearts since day one of Zola, where we want to serve every single couple, no matter race, religion, sexual orientation. And one of the things we do is we have a vendor pledge where every vendor who is on Zola has to commit to serving couples no matter who they are, and making it a very inclusive, welcoming place. And so hopefully changing wedding planning for the better and expect more to come from us on that front. I love it. So many exciting things ahead. I'd like to take the last few minutes to look back a little bit and think about all of the things that you've learned over the course of your career, starting with mistakes, because we all make them in our careers. We don't always talk about it because I feel like we live in this very like highlight real universe, but that's not real. So if you could share a mistake that you've made at any point in your career and what you've learned from it, I would be very grateful. Well, I would say the number one thing that I wish I could go back and do differently when starting Zola was 
in the early years, I was very focused, probably in retrospect, too focused on driving the business. So thinking about how can we build the team? How can we work on the product, move the metrics, make sure we're growing revenue and so focused on these things that I neglected some of the areas of infrastructure that are crucial to having a healthy, well-run business. One example I always think of is our level of sophistication around accounting and finance, you know, one or two years into the business was just way too basic for the scale of business that we were at. And I was slow in building the team and building the systems in those areas because I thought, oh, well, it's not moving the business metrics. And that was wrong. <laughs> you can't grow the business if you don't have the right foundation and infrastructure and kind of learned that the hard way. And so every founder that I talk to now, I always say, look, make sure that your house is in order. Even when you feel like you have so many things you have to do, it doesn't matter. Make sure the basics are in place. Makes a lot of sense. So a lot of the folks who listen to this podcast are in their first lives. They know that they want to make some sort of change, but they're a little bit nervous. What advice would you give someone who is sort of standing there on the precipice of this big decision, but they just haven't made the jump quite yet? You know, I always ask the question, which was a question that someone asked me actually when I was leaving Guilt and they had started a startup. And they were saying, if you're starting something, ask yourself, why do you want to do that? Why do you want to make this change? Can you really dig inside yourself to see if you can imagine doing your startup idea for the next 10 plus years of your life and thinking and doing nothing but that? Because that's what you're going to be doing <laughs> in a startup. And if you can't imagine that, you probably shouldn't do it. And you know, at that time, when my friend was posing this question, it was like the average life of a startup was seven years. And that's if you were successful, you got to keep working on it for seven years. And yeah. the life of a startup has grown even more. So now it's 10 years. It's a big chunk of time. But at the same time, if you feel like you can't think about anything else and you have to do this and you are so excited to commit at least 10 years of your life, then that's when you know you should do it. That's a really interesting way of looking at it. So my last question, it's also my favorite question, which is, if you could go back in time and give your younger self a little advice, what would you say? My advice would be, think bigger. You know, don't start a lemonade stand. Don't, you know, sell cookies. Just build a technology company. <laughs> build Microsoft. You know, each minute is so precious. And I think if you're going to spend it working really hard on something, make sure it's something that's going to have the biggest possible impact. And why can't you build something big? That should be the expectation. I love it. This was such a pleasure on so many levels. Thank you so much for your time and for your candor and also for building Zola, which I think is just such an incredible company and has helped so many people at these very important and emotional and expensive points in their lives. And I truly cannot remember life before it. And thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you for everything that you've done. For more inspiring interviews with women like Shanlin, head on over to secondlifepod.com where we have so many more for you to peruse. If you like today's show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rate and review us. 
We love seeing you spread the word on social. And now you can tag us in your posts. We are at Second Life Pod on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We always want to know who you're interested in hearing from on the show. So send in your requests to hello at secondlifepod.com or you can DM us on Instagram. I'm at Hillary Kerr. The show is at Second Life Pod. Our DMs are always open. I'm Hillary Kerr, and you've been listening to Second Life. This episode was produced by Hillary Kerr, Summer Hammeris, and Natalie Thurman. Our audio engineers are at Treehouse Recording in Los Angeles, California, and our music is by Jonathan Leahy.